back with more Food for Thought. This is Fluid Truth, and I'm attorney Shirley Skyers Thomas. We explore a simple question of whether there is equity in the justice system. The content offered in this segment is personal reflection and interpretation. The views of my guests are not necessarily the views of Fluid Truth or Quinnipiac University. For clarity, this conversation has been edited. My guests today are Ms. Asia Skyers and Dr. Don C. Sawyer III. Ms. Skyers is a Quinnipiac alum graduating with her BA in political science in 2016. She received her MPA from North Carolina Central University and will receive her JD and MIS next year. Dr. Sawyer is the Vice President for Equity, Inclusion, and Leadership Development, as well as an Associate Professor of Sociology right here at Quinnipiac University. In some of his many projects, he's the host of You the Man and Bridge the Gap podcasts. He's also the orchestrator of the Hip Hop Heels Project. We had the benefit of two really great perspectives right here at Fluid Truth. All right, I have two amazing people who are going to jump into conversation this time. Uh, I have Asia Skyers and Dr. Don C. Sawyer. Welcome both of you to Fluid Truth. I'm so glad you're on. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for having me as well. Absolutely. So we're going to change it up a little bit this time because those who are listening always get a chance to hear my voice and my conversation and how I'm pushing questions in my thoughts. Let's change it up today. So Asia is going to step in as the host and she's really going to be kind of just jumping into conversation with you. So I'm looking forward to hearing both of you and I'm just going to quiet myself now. Okay. So Dr. Sawyer, I'm so glad that I get a chance to interview and talk to you a little bit about equity in the justice system. As a former student, I've learned a lot from you. And as a law student, I'm learning a lot about justice from um, an academic level in a higher education. So firstly, what does equity look like to you? You're a professor, you're a student of the world, you are a hip hop connoisseur. So talk yeah. just a little bit about equity. So, I mean, one of the things I feel like it, when I think about it in my role, like, so I'm, I'm a sociology professor and so that's that, but I'm also serving as um, vice president for equity, inclusion and leadership development. And so we always have conversations about equity and the initial conversation is about differentiating equity and equality, right? Because people are using them interchangeably. And so getting people to think about that equity is not necessarily treating everyone the same. When I think about equity, I believe that equity in a sense is giving people what they need to succeed. And it also is, I think about it in relation to adjusting based on past practices. And so that's what I think of when I think about equity. So what comes to mind is this photograph that's circulated on the internet. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but it's of three people and they have the same level boxes. One oh, yeah, person's yeah. really short, someone's really tall, someone's like midsize. So quality is the same size box, but then equity would be where the box is kind of uh, changed so that the shorter person has a little bit more space to see over a fence and the taller person may be standing on the floor. So I'm wondering with the justice system, what does that look like for someone that may have come from less than ideal circumstances? So, so I think part of it is when, when you think about equity in the justice system, you also have to talk about equality, right? Because 
everyone is not treated the same in the justice system, right? Like if 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 they were, we would we could be we would be able to talk about something else. But we know that people are not treated equally in the justice system, right? And so that's one of the things that we have to focus on in the justice system. We have to focus focus on equality. Now, equity is also giving people, you know, access to you know, what they need. I mean, part of it is is I, I think rethinking some of the practices, right? When we think about public defenders and different things of that nature, when we think about, you know, who has access to resources like their own attorney versus a public defender. Like, I think the idea of the public defender is great and they're overworked, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you have the resources, you can, you know, get any attorney that you want to represent you that may, you may be their only client for that, that period of time. Right. And so I think that's some of the things that we can address. Um, we, we can under, understand how specifically when we think about in, in the justice system, right, the different practices. One of the things I was talking about with students is about how they were treated by police. And one of the, the exercises I would do, and I tell my students, I won't share it with anyone, but I have them write times that they've broken the law right? <laughs> <laughs> or, or things that they've done that were against the law, but they didn't get in trouble for it. Right. And so they, they send it to me. And so you have, you know, people from different backgrounds. Some people have broken into houses and haven't had pool parties. You know, some people talked about downloading music illegally. Some people talked about um, getting pulled over for driving drunk. Right. Now the differences, one of the things that I saw is that in some of my white students, some of my more affluent students, when they got caught by the police officers, whether they were drunk driving, they were just told to drive home, right? Or when they were caught at the house, breaking in to have the pool party, parents were called to have them picked up. Now, people who lived in other areas, anytime they were caught by police, they were not sent home. Their parents were not called. And if their parents were called, it was called they were getting a call from when they were down at the center at the, at the place after getting booked. Right. And so we, you know, we were talking about like the discrepancies in the treatment, right. And it, it was a simple exercise that, that we did to kind of show how there's differential treatment depending on where you live. And sometimes depending on where you live is also based on race and socioeconomic status. But we use those examples to kind of open up the students eyes to see how policing specifically in those instances were not was not handled um, in, in the same manner. And so generally, what is their response to that exercise, trying to look at their own privileges as opposed to what other people may face? I, mean, I think that those are the moments where we have the aha moments. One of the things that's related to that is before we do that exercise, I ask people to describe, I'll ask the question, like, what's a criminal? And they'll write up, you know, all of these things, right? And like, and that's when I ask, you know, have any of you broken the law? People are like, yeah. And I ask, are you a criminal? And they're like, no. And I was like, well, look at the definitions that you put up there. Do you meet those definitions? And they're like, well, 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 yeah, kind of. I'm like, okay. So are you a criminal? It's like, no. So why do we characterize these other folks as criminal? Or you just did it. Um, you didn't get caught. One of the other aha moments is, you know, I had a student in the class ask, you know, hey, Professor Sawyer, how come black people don't like police. And I was like, it's not that all black people don't like police officers. Right. And so I asked her to tell me your experience with police. And so in her neighborhood, her family were, were friends with the police. They lived in the same neighborhood as the officers, the police in the neighborhood 
came over to the Super Bowl parties and different things of that nature. And so they were the coaches of teams and different things. And so that was her experience with the police. And then I told her about my experience with the police growing up in Harlem during the height of the crack cocaine epidemic. It wasn't the same. They weren't at barbecues. They weren't coming over to the house. And if they were at a barbecue, they were breaking up the barbecue, right? We had to, you know, answer where we were going at any given time because we were seen as potential problems. And so I was like asking them, do you see how our experiences with the police shapes our worldview? Right. And so she's like, okay, that makes sense. And so that, that's all I try and do is, is to disrupt preconceived notions that these students have about anything related to justice, equity, inequity, equality, and things of that nature. And we're so glad that we have professors like you, past students, current students. And I know that some of your students probably went on to get criminal justice degrees and are police officers themselves. But how how is that bridge gapped? I mean, the system itself is arguably inherently corrupt. So how do we get to that place where police are offering equitable services to all people or equal services to all people? Do you believe also in eradicating police and maybe doing some sort of community policing as opposed to what we have currently? So, I mean, so there, there's a lot, right? And so when people say eradicate the police, it, I mean, it, it sounds great. But I think that people have to think about what that looks like, right? If we say eradicate the police. And, and, and first of all, we have to get past people just using talking points, like people, oh, defund the police, eradicate the police. But people what does don't it really actually know. look like? What, what, yeah, what does that mean? It, it sounds good to say, but what, what is it? What does it mean? Right. When people say defund the police, what do you mean? Like, do you mean get rid of the police or do you mean that, you know, take some of the funds away from police stations and putting it into other resources that could benefit the community? Right. So we have to have more deep discussions on that and get beyond like just the political talking points on on that on that place, um, on that piece, rather. And so when I think about working with students who want to go on to be attorneys or people who want to go on to be uh, in law enforcement, I, I think my job is to have them go in with their eyes wide open. Right. I mean, they're fighting against the system that was set up. Um, the, the system functions, you know, on its own. But, what you know, what can we do? And so when I sp spoke with an advisee, I remember when, you know, he told me that he wanted to be a police officer. And I was like, well, why? And he was like, you know, I want to get the bad guys off the street. And I was like, OK, you want to get bad guys off the street. And I was like, where do you want to work? And he talked about he wanted to work in an urban space. Now, he was from the suburbs of Connecticut, <laughs> had no experience with with urban spaces, but he wanted to get the bad guys off of the street. And so I'm like, who well, who are the bad guys that you want to get off the street? You know, these, these criminals. OK, what, like what criminals and why? Why do you need to go into the urban spaces to get these criminals off the street? Do you not have criminals in your neighborhood? Um, you know, what happened to serve and protect? You know, and just asking these questions now probably irritate the hell out of people. You know, with these questions, but I think they're important questions because if you have someone coming from a, a suburban space or an affluent neighborhood who wants to become a police officer and they are already not even a police officer yet, they're a student already in their mind targeting people who live in underfunded neighborhoods and, and considering that's where the bad guys are. Like, are you freaking kidding me? Like, nah, we're going to disrupt that. Or we're going to try our damnedest to disrupt that idea that you think that the bad guys exist in these underfunded neighborhoods or that you think that people who live in these spaces are inherently criminal. That's a serious problem. Right. And just like so many things, it's multifaceted, right? I mean, we have students that 
have a goal to be a police officer, but they have these preconceived notions of what that looks like and what that means. That doesn't come from college. That doesn't come from, hey, the day that I want to decide to be a police officer, that's not where it starts. It starts at home. It starts on TV. It starts on the news, wherever it is. And so that problem, it can't be focused just on eradicating or defunding the police. It has to go to education, which leads me to my next question. Why did you decide to become an educator? I mean, you could have gone to fight the good fight being a lawyer, a judge, a police officer yourself, but you chose to climb Mount Everest. <laughs> well, I mean, the funny thing is I used to be afraid of police officers, right? My, my mother, if you, if you talk to my family, anytime I was misbehaving, she would say, I'm going to call the police. And if I was doing something and she picked up the phone and I thought she was calling the police, I would lose it um, and, and start crying. Like all my aunts and stuff would, you know, still tease me about that. And I was like, well, see, <laughs> you, got to see uh, you, you see what was happening. Um, that's why I was, I was afraid, but I mean, I never wanted to be a police officer. I have law enforcement in my family. Um, I know good police officers. So it's, it's never, uh, you know, a, uh, just talking about individual people, we talk when we talk about like improving policing. I mean, we're talking about individuals who who make up a system, but we're really talking about the system. And so, I thought I was going to be a doctor, right? Because you you always say something that you think is going to impress people. You say I'm going to be a doctor, and people go, "Oh, right." Like, okay, well, I guess I'm gonna be a doctor, right? So I was trying to improve. I mean, impress my family and stuff like that. And clearly, it, it wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do. And I never intended to be an educator. I never intended to be a professor, a sociology professor, because you may know that I tell the story that I got like a D in introduction to sociology um, in my undergrad time. And I would love to meet that, see that professor. I wonder if she's still there to let her know that I'm a sociology professor. <laughs> um, so yeah. And so I didn't see it. I got a D in sociology. So you know it. I'm like, I'm not thinking about being a professor. And, you know, I started doing work in higher education working in residence life and, and th different things of that nature. Then someone was like, you know, have you thought about going to graduate school? I'm like, okay. You know, I did my master's degree. Then it was like, you know, you can go on and get your doctorate. I'm like, my doctorate? I'm like, okay, I guess. But then I remember I was a TA and I would like to say I was like, I was cooler than my professor. Like, because when it was dealing with like pop culture, I was able to relate um, to students. And then I was able to draw upon my student affairs background like in learning how to facilitate conversations because one of the things that happens in graduate school, you're not taught how to teach, right? And so being able to facilitate conversations, being able to listen, be, being able to unpack and different things and like move a crowd, right? Like, like an MC moves the crowd and using those skills in the classroom, that was important. And I was later on, um, I got into this, you know, this program, like the future professoriate program where they, you do go through training for teaching. So I got like a, a certificate in university teaching. I did that, did the PhD. Um, and then it was like, okay, well, I'm going to look for a faculty appointment. And that's how I ended up at Quinnipiac. And I was already in higher ed for about 13 years before that point. And so when I came to Quinnipiac in 2012, that was my first gig just as a, as a full-time faculty member. And so looking back on your journey up until this point, how do you see your future in this DEI space, diversity, equity, inclusion? Um, I, I think the, the work that I do, I like to believe that it's about opening doors 
leveling the playing field and making our community conducive to the success of everyone and anyone who would join it. Right. That, that's what my work is about. My mantra is do good work and treat people well, because I mean, the, the interesting thing in the work that I do, like I, in addition to the work on campus, I also do work, you know, in the community with people who are in prison or who have returned home from prison. And part of the reason why I do that is because I've, I've always been prison adjacent, right? I, I, you know, fortunately in Menachem Wood, I've, I've, I've never been to prison and I, and I, I don't plan to ever go, but there are people in my life who have gone to prison, right? And have returned home. There are people in my life who are still in prison. And the interesting thing is that, and I, and I say this all the time, people are probably tired of me hearing it. The people tired of hearing it from me, but the people who protected me growing up, or the people who have criminal records, right? They had been to prison and came out. They were the people who were selling drugs. They were the people who were in gangs and doing stuff in the streets of Harlem, but they didn't let me do it, right? Some people were not as fortunate as me because some people got recruited into the game. I didn't get recruited into the game. I was told to stay away from it because they saw something in me, right? They saw that I, I would be able to make it. And so that's why I channel some of my energy to working with some of the most marginalized people in, in our community, because that's the, the place that I came from. I came from the projects, right? I didn't, none of my, my parents didn't finish college my, or go to college. My, uh, my mom went, you know, later on in her fifties. Um, but we, we, we grew up in the projects and public housing, right? And so statistically I wasn't supposed to make it out, but because of those people in my community who shielded me from the stuff that they were doing, I, I was able to leave and, and go to college and, and and use education as a tool of transformation. And so I feel like it's my duty to continue to do this work within those communities that are often forgotten about. But those are the communities that save me. So that's really interesting to me because you are in this space. You are a well-educated Black man who has been um, prison adjacent, but has chosen a school like Quinnipiac that is very white and very privileged to teach. And so when you are fighting so hard for the students uh, in New Haven Public Schools or for people in prison to get that opportunity that wasn't given to them, how do you kind of balance that with the students that have opportunities given to them from birth? I don't want to say you take opportunity away, but how do you level the playing field for people that don't have with the haves? So, so I think opportunity is endless, right? Like I don't look at opportunity like pie. Like people think that if, if this person gets opportunity, then it's taken away from me. Or if that person gets justice, it's taken away from me. Like, no, like there's enough light to go around, right? You don't have to try and stop someone from getting light. You can help them get light and then it'll brighten that space. And so in, in working with people who haven't been given that opportunity, or haven't grown up on that level playing field and, and started out a little behind, I think it's important to do work to remove some of those obstacles. And for those who have started a little bit ahead, it's not about slowing them down, but it's about waking them up to see like the differences. And I think that's the important piece because, you know, th those of us, you know, who have been fortunate to go to college or, or have parents that went to college and um, are affluent or, or have a little something, something, it's important for them to be awake because they're going to be going into leadership roles, right? 
they're going to be in spaces where they can make decisions. And so if we can work with them to kind of see and not feel guilty about what they have, because guilty is a pointless emotion and, 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 and this guilt doesn't matter. The guilt doesn't change anything. And so it was like, this is what happened. Like, these are the systems that were in place. This is how you were able to get what you got. And this is how you can help others along the path. And so I think it's important to pull people in and hopefully get them to a space where they can see some of the systems that were in place and to think about like, how can they change the world through their sphere of influence? Right. That, that's what I ask people to do. Can you change the world in your sphere of influence, right? I don't, you can't go everywhere and be everywhere, but if you are an attorney, what can you do in your sphere of influence to help change the world and make life better for others? If you are a teacher, what can you do in your sphere of influence to try and make life better for others who may not have a voice, right? And so that, that's what I ask people to do. And I think that's one of the things that we should all do is understand where we are and think about the problems that we may be able to help solve in our area, in our sphere of influence. And I think that's what, what we need to do. So that's a really good point. I didn't really think about it that way. So on the flip side, what advice do you have for other seasoned professionals or young professionals like myself that are growing into these spaces or moving from space to space where they might not have had a Don Sawyer teaching them or giving them the opportunity to see the world as it is and not as they've known it. Mm -hmm. so, so I think that it's important to have a mentor and a sponsor, right? Because I have one of the things that I've benefited from is hearing the stories of other people. And so I'm, I'm big on hearing other people's story. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. And so when I was young in my career, you know, Barry Wells, uh, I love this guy because you know, I start out in, in, in residence life and student affairs and I hear this name, Barry Wells, and he's the senior vice president of student affairs. And I'm like, a senior vice president, Barry Wells. I'm like, who is this person that people keep on talking about? And we have this, you know, this division wide breakfast. He comes out and speaks. And Barry Wells is this black man who walks on stage. And I'm like, yo, Barry Wells is in charge of all of this. Like he's overseeing the division of student affairs at Syracuse University. Like he's over all of this. I'm like, yo, I want to meet that guy. And people are like, why you want to meet? He's not going to meet with you. You just say, you know, he's not going to meet with you. I'm like, well, I'm going to find out. Emailed his assistant. I was like, you know, I would like to meet with um, Dean Wells. Is it possible? He said, yes, we met. And he told me his story. And then the, the second thing that he said was, when are you getting a graduate degree? And I'm like, well, dang, Barry, I just started this job. Like, can I get my, my feet wet a little bit? And he's like, when are you starting your, your graduate degree? Because he's like, you know, people like me are not going to be here forever. We need the next generation of people coming up. And so he would meet with me, you know, once or twice a semester throughout, you know, the time that he was in that role um, and just, you know, give advice. And so hearing from him, hearing from another person, Dr. Horace Smith, who was there as well. Um, and, and, and learning from them, I was able to kind of bounce ideas off of them. And so any gems that were, that were given to me from them based on their experiences are the same gems that I pass on to people who ask me questions. Um, and it wasn't until a couple of years ago that I realized that people look at me as an OG in the game, right? I've been in higher education now for, what is this? For 23 years, right? For 23 years. Yeah. And so people are like, yo, you know, we want to know what it's like. And I'm like, 
like, damn, that's the same stuff I was asking Barry. And so now I'm in Barry's role, right? I'm a VP at a university and I have people who are asking me questions. And so I mean, I'll tell them stuff from my story, but I also pass on gems that Barry and, and Horace and countless others gave to me because it is not for me to keep. Like it was something that I benefited from and I have to leave some for others. And so, you know, I had a, a meeting, a call a couple of weeks ago with some young black professionals at Quinnipiac and we just kind of were talking about, you know, different things, but like how to navigate systems and, you know, talking about imposter syndrome, like all of these different things that I didn't get to late, but guess what? I'm not holding on to it. I got to pass it on like, like Barry and, and, and them did for me. So that, that that's kind of the, the way that I, I see it. And one of the reasons why I stay in higher education um, and to find good people. And one of the last things I'll say is that like, in this role, like you, you get a lot of people like search firms who find out about you and like, yo, we got these jobs at these other spaces and different things like that. And so I was like, eh, I don't know. And so I went on the job market about two years ago and I was a finalist for this Ivy League institution. And then I was a, a finalist for uh, this other huge um, public institution. And people were like, yo, if you get that offer, you got to go, you got to go. And I was like, I don't know. We'll see. Right. And so I got an offer and people are like, you, you going, right. You going. And I was like, nah. So I spoke with my supervisor about it and I decided to stay and people are like, yo, son, you, you stay in like, yeah. Well, you got to tell the people why, why did you decide to stay? <laughs> so the reason why is because my, my supervisor believes in giving me stretch projects. Right. And working to do things that are outside of my job responsibilities that are in the job description, because, you know, I told her I don't necessarily want to be doing DEI for the rest of my career. Like, I mean, I'll still support DEI in any role that I'm in, but I don't want that to be my primary responsibility. And so I get different stretch opportunities, you know, working with, you know, potential donors, working with the board of trustees, working with like all of these different committees. And I didn't see that happening at the other places. Um, you know, when she meet when she meets with people and thinks there are people that I need to meet and speak with, she brings me in to that session. Like, OK, I need you to connect here and, and do those things. And I didn't see that in some of these other places. And so, yes, the other places would have been greater, like as far as like institutional prestige. But I firmly believe that what's for me is for me. And if it was meant for me to be there, I would have I would have gone. But my sanity was more important than just jumping for institutional prestige. And I think that I have the ability to do more work and to impact the communities that I love in my current role. Will I be here forever? No. But at that moment in time, it wasn't right for me to leave because I had a good relationship with my supervisor. That's very admirable and something that young people like myself could learn from because going to the next opportunity for prestige or for name sometimes really just jumps at us and we probably should take a step back and say, what is right for me? What is good for me in this moment? Mm -hmm. and, and the other thing I would say, that there's a difference between a job that you can do and the job that you're supposed to be doing. Like there are a lot of jobs that you can do. Like I can do a lot of jobs, but then there's a difference between that and the job that I'm meant to do at that given time. You find that hard to differentiate at, at certain points? I mean, it must have been hard to see this really, really big opportunity and say, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stay where I am because this is what I'm supposed to do. How do you know mm -hmm. which is which? I, 
I have no idea. I, I ask it to the universe and I get my answers <laughs> through, 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 through people. Like I get my answers through people. Like I would, I was thinking about like recently, like I'm supposed to be working on this visual project that I keep on putting on the back burner. I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. Maybe I'll do it. I don't know if I'm going to do this visual project. I don't know. And so I'm coming back and this is like th- last week. So I'm coming back from LA, get off the plane. Who's on the plane? Spike Lee. What? Right. And so, I mean, I didn't speak with him or anything like that because I don't be rolling. He's with his son or whatever. And I was with my son. But for me, that was a confirmation from the universe. I'm like, yo, should I do this visual project? And you chilling right there next to Spike Lee. He's like, oh, okay, I guess that's a sign that I need to do it. All right. And so it's, it's things like that, you know. That, that's how I figured out. It's, it's not easy. I write, I write down lists and everything. Yep. So how do you impart that sort of experience with your kids? Cause you, you mentioned your son, I know you guys have a podcast. So how do you teach him things that you kind of just feel and you kind of feel is right to him so that he knows later on when he's faced with decisions to make sure that he's doing what's right for him. And like, how do you explain that feeling to him? Yeah. I don't, I mean, we hopefully through our conversations um, because it's not, like through lessons, like I don't walk out to the kitchen table, like son, when I was your age, like it's not like that. Like it's through like interactions and and, yeah. and stuff. Um, and hopefully, you know, as he understands how and why I made decisions and different things like that, that he'll be able to get an idea. And, you know, of course, if he asks questions, you know, he can ask like when he's going out for interviews now, he's a senior, you know, graduating from college. And, you know, as I'm talking with him about, you know, different things, how you dress, make sure you're getting your resume right, your LinkedIn, you know, all of that stuff. So. And is that the same for the type of work that you're doing that affects him? Is it one of those things that he kind of has to see you go through? Or do you have to sit with him and say, this is the difference between equity and uh, equality? And this is what's going on in the justice system. And this is how you conduct yourself. Or is it something that is kind of like inherent in the household? Yeah, it's just it's just things that that happen, like the discussions, you know, that that that, that have happened. Um, and like he's he's fortunate. Right. This is an example of how education is a, a transformational tool and it changes generational trajectories. Right. His mother, you know, her her mother and father didn't go to college. My parents didn't go to college. Right. But we went on to to, to college and university. And so, you know, I got a PhD. His mother has a PhD, right, in the same household, and so they they saw these the us grinding and, and different things like that. And so, you know, even even now, like you know, him, his mother, not like we're divorced, but we still have this positive relationship with with the kids, right? Because that that's what it's about. And so they they see those things. And so I've had conversations with him about you know what was it like to be the son of a professor or like the assumptions that people make and like the lessons and th- different things that he learned. Um, he, he has some very um, interesting observations. So, yeah. That I, I bet. I mean, his father was prison adjacent <laughs> and he, he is not in the same situation. So I'm sure that just learning from you and your experiences, but then also having his own experiences and then the generational divide, because the kids that are growing up today, I bet it's a, not even a 360. It's just completely different than how you grew up back then. Oh, it's, yes. It's he, he sees it. Like he goes back. My mother still lives in the same apartment I grew up in. Like they've, they've grown up going back to Harlem. They know the neighborhood. They know the apartment I, I lived in. There was no, you have your own room. There was no running in the house. There's no <laughs> way to damn run. You know what I'm saying? Um, and so they, they've seen 
they've seen that and so so they know that it that that it's that it's different right and, and yeah we we talk about all of the all of this stuff i mean the interesting thing is doing the podcast cuz we just we're, we're having conversations on different topics some things that we see in in a similar manner and other things we don't see we're not on the same page at all but that, that's the whole thing right you know bridging that gap right right well, I really appreciate you having this conversation with me. I haven't spoken to you in a while, so yep, yep. I'm grateful. Absolutely. Are you still in school? I'm still in school, okay. graduating next May. Okay. And so I'll be out there with y'all fighting the good fight. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a great question because I was going to ask you both before you walk away, what's next? What's next in terms of some projects that are right in front of you? Don, I know you you always have things that you're working on. So I'm interested in that from you. And for Asia, what's educationally, what's next for you? And, and what are you hoping to step into? Um, so right now, one of the, the things that I'm one, one of the things that I'm working on right now is actually um, this program. You know, I have this program called Hip Hop Heals um, that was started in the Dominican Republic, working with Haitian and Dominican youth who live in the Dominican Republic building bridges between those communities, 16 bars at a time, right? 16 bars, the length of a traditional rap verse. And so they come together through a love of hip hop. And so we're expanding right now and we're building the Hip Hop Heals Center, the community center in the in this community. And so we had some generous people help us get the land. And so the land is there. And so now we're raising money for the the actual building. Um, and so that that's, it's already started. Like the foundation is being worked on right now as we speak. Um, I'll be sending out like pictures and updates on that. I'm going out there in April and then again in uh, July, just kind of check up on the, on the progress of it. And um, yeah, it's just, just to be able to like, again, like do good work and treat people well. You know what I mean? You, and, you say it like you just got like a, a brand new t-shirt. Like that's such an amazing thing. That's huge. Wow. Yeah. But it, it's, it, it's the people like it's, reaching out to people um, and them believing in your vision or, you know, looking at the work that you, you know, that I've done in the past and people trusting that it'll be good. Um, and then also getting into a place where now I can use, you know, some of my own money and put it towards, you know, positive things, right. People talk about, you know, doing different things. And so was, for me, it's not just about liking something on Facebook or just posting the picture. like, you know, if I have resources, I try to put my resources behind something that I believe in. And this is one of the things that I really believe in. I've seen it, you know, help to to change the lives of certain people. And so that's kind of what I'm working on at the moment. I love that this is international plane too. So you have your domestic work, which is so multifaceted. And now we're hearing that you have this whole international crusade. This is amazing, Don. And kudos to you. You know, we're really excited about that. We want to hear more. So when things start to, you know, jump off and, you know, there's more to tell, we're ready to hear more. But Asia, what about you? What's next? Um, so this is my last summer as a student. Thank God. And so next summer, um, I'll be graduating and then preparing for the bar exam. And so um, after that, hopefully I will have um, found a job. <laughs> <laughs> But um, I am looking at a firm that does primarily civil litigation. And so that's a really great opportunity for me to get in some pro bono hours on the criminal front because the firm doesn't handle stuff like that. So um, 
that's always been my first love doing uh, criminal litigation, criminal defense work. And so hopefully within the next five to seven years, I'll be able to do that more often. But, you know, just trying to get some bills paid at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. I appreciate you staying here and having this conversation. Asia, thank you for stepping in. Don, thank you for bringing your flavor and all the multifacetedness to the conversation. I appreciate you both. And until next time, we'll have a good talk. Thank you. Thanks for listening in today. Special thanks to our producer, Raynette Shafu and executive producer, David DeRoche. Shout out to the Fluid Truth crew for their assistance. That's Jillian Catalano and Jake McCarthy. Music is provided by Audio Hero from their Jazz Lounge album. To hear about all of our podcasts, visit qu.edu slash podcast. You can listen to our podcast on the platform or app of your choice. Be sure to check us out on Twitter and Instagram at qpodcasts. If you have a short story to share or something you want to talk about, find us on social media or shoot us an email. The address is qupodcast at qu.edu. All right, that's it for today. Till next time.